Today, I'm going to tell you a story about obsession, deceit, and abuse. It's a story that puts a teenage daughter at the center of a conspiracy plot, or two, to murder her mother. It's a case that shook and enraged the local community, one where arguably the most sympathetic person is the murderer himself. Settle in because we are diving deep. This is the story of Joyce Aparo, Karen Aparo, and Dennis Coleman. I'm Colby. I'm joined by my two best friends, Laura and Marina, and this is Grim. Oh boy. I'm excited. Guys, I know this has been a long time coming. I know I struggled to put this together. And for our listeners, get excited because this is a two-parter. I literally have 45 uh-huh. pages of notes and somehow I still kept details out of this episode. Colby wrote a dissertation. Yeah, we'll I, be, we'll I really be, did. We'll be sending the uh, invitations for her PhD soon. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So this is, whew, this is a good one. Um, One of the reasons we started this podcast was to be able to shed light on lesser-known cases, and that's exactly what I plan to do today. The murder of Joyce Aparo, it's not widely covered. There are not dozens of other podcasts that have covered this. I've never heard of it. I think a lot of people haven't, and I'm kind of surprised. And when we get to the end of both parts, I'll, I'll ask you guys about that. But I don't know why this wasn't sensationalized as much as I think it probably should have been. Maybe now it will be. Maybe. Um, But being from Connecticut, this case obviously hits very close to home for most of us. So I am going to take my time with it and I'm going to give it the attention that it deserves. Is this in Connecticut? It is in Connecticut. It is in Glastonbury, Connecticut, the majority of it. All right. Really? Yep. Glastonbury. Huh. I felt um, like that was a really obvious question based on what you just said. But I, I just so wanted too. to but confirm. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to confirm. She's disappointed. It's not Australia. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Damn it. It had to be. It had to be local. Okay. So before we jump into all of the details, I did want to give a shout out to the book that I read. It was called Beyond Obsession by Richard Hammer. It was a phenomenal book. It covered this case in incredible detail. Um, I am beyond fascinated not beyond (laughs) obsession i'm beyond fascinated with this case and the questions that it poses such as what's the difference between love and obsession can a lifelong victim of abuse really be held accountable for conspiring to murder their abuser can someone be so blinded by love that they can be compelled to do anything even kill someone what is fair compensation for a life oh Oh boy those are those are heavy questions hashtag deep yeah this is, this is why I had a hard time putting this one together, guys. This this was a lot. I went deep. We are going to have some psychology. We are going to have abuse. We're going to have conspiracy. We're going to have murder. It, this, this case has it all. Okay. Buckle up, buttercup. Yep. Um, the only other thing I will say is we are going back to the 80s for this case. This one takes place in the late 80s. So before the three of us were born, we are starting. No, it was only 20 years ago. <laughs> mm, the 80s oh. are so many years ago. They are. Oh, oh. Yeah, mm-hmm. they are. All right. We'll, we'll pretend it's 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Are you guys ready? Proceed. So ready. Okay. On the morning of August 5th, 1987, police chief Peter Brulot was preparing breakfast when he heard a knock at his door. It was his sergeant informing him that a car had just been discovered next door to his house. 
The chief was certain that the car had not been there the night prior when he went to bed, so that meant at some point during the night, someone managed to drive their car down the embankment next to the chief's house and into a stream without disturbing the chief's sleep whatsoever. Hmm. Funny enough, these two men, the chief and the uh, the sergeant, they were the only two police officers in this very small Massachusetts village of Bernardston. I looked it up. The village of Bernardston is literally located in the area where Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire all meet. Mm-hmm. So it is very far north in Massachusetts from like where I grew up mm-hmm. and more western Mass than mm-hmm. where I came from. But very tiny town. Um the car itself that was found was a white 1986 Volkswagen Jetta. It had been totally stripped inside. There was no registration or insurance documents, no credit cards, and nothing to ID a potential owner. It sure seemed like somebody had gone through a lot of trouble to make it difficult to ID the owner of this vehicle. And so the police originally are just thinking somebody stole this car and they just dumped mm-hmm. it in this location. Mm-hmm. So the chief took down the VIN for the car and he headed back to the station to see if he could use this information to find out anything about the car and its owner. So he first tried calling the Massachusetts Department of Motor Vehicles, had them look it up. And again, right, this is in the 80s, so Mm -hmm. they do not have the sophisticated systems that we have today. But what they found out... the DMV probably has (laughs) the same systems that they did in 1987. Actually, the RMV in Massachusetts, not the DMV. Oh, well, the the RMV definitely has the same (laughs) same, uh, computer systems as they did in 87. I think the screen is black with green text. Uh Mm -hmm. You know, I'm laughing a lot about that, but our company also still uses those. So many systems that way that I work with. So does the Department of Corrections. Oh, that's and that's for security yep. reasons. Oh, oh. Mm. that's actually encouraging. Mm. Fun fact. Mm. Grim fact. Mm. You're welcome. <laughs> Proceed. <laughs> so back at his office, he did call the Massachusetts Department of Motor Vehicles and he had them look up the VIN and they found nothing. This VIN was not a car that was registered in Massachusetts. And they also checked a stolen car database and same thing. The vehicle didn't show up in there. The chief had the idea to drive into nearby Greenfield, Massachusetts, which is where the closest Volkswagen dealership was. His thought was, hey, maybe they can provide some insight on what this, who this car is registered to. So apparently, for it being 1987, Volkswagen actually had some pretty sophisticated systems in place. You could look up a VIN and you could see who the car was registered to. You could even see where it was last serviced, like the date and the location of the last service. So what they found is that the vehicle belonged to a Connecticut-based leasing company. The chief departed the dealership with this information, and he placed a call to the leasing office. They told him that the car was leased by Athena Healthcare Associates. It was just after 10 a.m. in the morning when the chief decided, you know what, I'm going to reach out to Athena, and I'm going to see who this car is registered there, mm-hmm. registered to there. Mm-hmm. Michael Zaccaro, one of Athena's founders, answered the call. The chief explained that they had found the car, and he wanted to know, did Michael think that this vehicle was familiar? Was it one of his? Michael said, absolutely. It specifically looks like one that was registered to my employee and my friend, Joyce Aparo. Oh, no. So <laughs> the, the chief asked how he could get in touch with Joyce. And Michael Zaccaro said, you know what? You're not the only one who's looking to find Joyce this morning. Joyce actually had not shown up for work that day. And the company was trying to get a hold of her. Michael suggested that it was possible that Joyce's 16-year-old daughter, Karen, may be able to offer some insight regarding her mother's whereabouts. Michael knew that Karen was staying with her violin teacher, Albert Markov, and his family in Rowayton, Connecticut, um, which is a small village in the town of Norwalk. I, I was going to yeah, say, I know many towns. I feel, well, well, after our Torrington discussion, apparently <laughs> I don't, but I had not heard of that. Norwalk, huh? So Michael was actually fearing that Joyce might be scheming and she might be up to something. 
So about six weeks prior to where we're picking up here, Joyce had been rear-ended and she was complaining about the car ever since she had gotten to that accident. She felt like the people who fixed it had done a terrible job and the car just wasn't running right anymore. So she ran it into a stream. (laughs) That's what he's thinking, honestly. fair. She she had been like very aggressive and asking like uh, for a new car. She really wanted one. And you know what? She even asked the company's lawyer what their insurance policy on the car would cover. She specifically was very curious if it covered the theft of the vehicle. Okay, that's sketchy. Mm -hmm. Very sketchy. Can I also just laugh at the fact that we talk about insurance so much and absolutely not intentionally. I know. They're like, the car was found in the stream, the insurance company got involved, and they solved the case. And they solved the case, the end. (laughs) With the Pinkertons. No, 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 no. This this is gonna, it's not going the direction that you think it is. We're on page two of 49,000, so. (laughs) So, Michael calls this attorney for the company, and he's like, you know, Joyce had recently asked us about the insurance pump, about the insurance policy we had on the car. Do you think she's trying to like pull one over on us? And mm-hmm. Jeff said, you know what? That sounds exactly like something that Joyce would do. So the two men said nothing to the police about this. They kind of just sat on it themselves, and they continued to try to get in touch with Joyce. Meanwhile, Chief Brulat had called the Glastonbury Police Department. And we had said Glastonbury is where Joyce is from. And he was asking if somebody could go out and check on Joyce to see if he could get some answers regarding the car. So Officer Keith O'Brien from the Glastonbury Police Department went to the condo that Joyce lived at. And he knocked, but there was no answer. He tried calling a handful of times to see if maybe somebody was inside and just not coming to the door, but no one picked up the phone either. He relayed the news that nobody was home, and he actually left a note in the mailbox asking Joyce to call police headquarters when she returned home. 90 minutes later, the department sent Officer O'Brien back to the Aparo household to see if anybody was there now. He knocked and still no one answered, but this time he tried the front door, and it was unlocked. He let himself into the five-room condo, and he took a look around. To him, nothing seemed to be terribly out of place. Which I always think is funny because how would you know if something was out of place in somebody else's home? Yeah, my dogs run around my house and destroy our rugs. And you would think that someone was running for their lives (laughs) in my house. But it's just my dogs. Yeah. So inside the condo, he first walked into a bedroom that very clearly belonged to a teenage girl. It was about as neat as a teenager's room could possibly be. But it was just absolutely full of stuff. So nothing that noteworthy in that room. The other bedroom, though, was a bit more disheveled than this one. The bed had very obviously been slept in. It was left unmade. There were sheets that were tousled. There were two pillows and a blanket on the floor. And he also noticed that the bed had been pushed away from the wall a little bit. But you know what? It wasn't bad enough to really arouse much suspicion. It kind of just looked like maybe somebody slept and left in a hurry, like they slept through their alarm. Hmm. Maybe somebody was looking for something that they had put on their bed and just kind of rummaging through things. So nothing really that concerning that they've found. Sounds like my bedroom. (laughs) Yes. So Officer O'Brien, again, reports this information to his lieutenant, who, not to confuse things, but his name is David Karen. So we have Karen, the daughter, and Karen, the detective. I think we're sensing a theme for all murder related cases is there are there's a thread of names in them. Yes. We have common names everywhere. I can't think of any examples. So that's not very helpful. So while Officer O'Brien wasn't really suspicious of what he found at the condo, Lieutenant Karen thought he should go check it out for himself. So when he arrived there, he observed a few things that he thought were noteworthy. 
So the glass sliding doors that face a rather busy throughway in town were also unlocked, which he thought was kind of weird because the slider was on the opposite side of like where you'd enter the mm. condo. Is this one of those villages, though, where it's yes. super safe and everyone leaves all their doors unlocked? Yes, I think so. Okay. He also noticed that in the living room on the coffee table, there was a $10 bill, a Texaco gas card, a concert program, and just a stack of papers. On the floor, there were some garbage bags, the box that the bags had come in, and an afghan that Joyce had actually made herself. Very talented. The officers concluded that the home looked a little bit messy, but they really weren't all that suspicious that something happened there. So far, we don't really have much to go off of. Mm -hmm. I'm just feeling really called out that that is described as messy, (laughs) because my house is a garbage can, basically. (laughs) That's how I feel, too. Like... So at this point, it's about 1130 in the morning, and Michael Zaccaro has still not heard from Joyce. He actually remembered that she had a chiropractor appointment that morning at 10, so he was thinking, you know what, maybe she just didn't come to the office before she went to her doctor's appointment. So he called the chiropractor. Joyce never showed up at her appointment. Oh, dear. By now, Michael was starting to get a little bit concerned, and he called Joyce's teenage daughter, Karen, hoping that Karen knew where her mother was. Michael was very careful not to alarm Karen, but he asked her, like, hey, do you know where your mom is? And Karen said that she had spoken with her multiple times the night before. She knew her mother was tired from a long day and went to bed early, and she expected that she was going to have another long day at work today. So as far as Karen knew, nothing was going on. It was a normal day for her mother. Mm-hmm. The chief from the Bernardston, Massachusetts area right he also called karen and she told him the exact same thing the chief asked if karen could provide a description of his of her mother so he could keep a lookout for her and karen did around 2 30 that same afternoon an 11 year old boy was out taking his dog for a walk on route 10 bald mountain road in bernard's bernardston massachusetts i got massachusetts like i was bernardston like for a second i had to fight it why is it so hard to say those names because i want to say it the way that it is in my dna yeah (laughs) like it needs to be the massachusetts pronunciation for me (laughs) so as this boy and his dog approached a small bridge over the fall river his dog started to tug on the leash pulling the boy towards something rather than let go the boy held on and followed his dog down an embankment and he approached the river He got about 20 feet away when he saw what his dog was reacting to. Oh, no. It was a woman's body. Oh, God. This poor poor 11-year-old boy, scared out of his absolute mind, raced home with his dog to tell his stepfather what he had found. His stepfather immediately called the police station, and Chief Brulat was on his way shortly to investigate. Along the riverbank, covered in brush and leaves, was the body of a dark-haired woman in her mid-40s. She was wearing only a nightgown. She had bruises all over her body, some seemingly to be from a struggle prior to her death. There were abrasions and layers of dirt coating her, her arms, her legs, her chest, just bruises everywhere. Her face was bloated and badly bruised. She had been strangled, and the pantyhose that were used to do so were still tied tightly around her neck. There was also a yellow paper towel stuffed inside of her mouth. Brulat quickly secured the scene, and he called in the medical examiner. He searched the area, but all he found were the footprints of the boy and the paw prints of his dog and a gray work glove underneath the body. It actually had rained earlier that morning, and it very likely washed away any other evidence that was at the scene. Murder was not something that happened in this quiet village. Their department was just not equipped to be able to deal with a crime of this nature, so he called the Massachusetts State Police. It was at that moment when he called the Mass State Police that he realized that the vehicle they found and this woman were very likely connected. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a missing 40-year-old woman from Connecticut. 
you have a car that belongs to her and now you found a body and that body mm-hmm. is of a dark haired woman who is in her 40s mm-hmm. so he's thinking could this be Joyce Aparo that I've just sure. found makes sense he had his dispatcher call the Glastonbury Police Department while he continued to talk with the Mass State Police. Um, when the Massachusetts State Police showed up on the scene, they took over the investigation because, again, this small town's just not equipped mm-hmm. for this. The Glastonbury PD at this point went back to the Aparo household and they secured the scene. They roped it off with crime scene tape. They stationed three police officers outside of the condo to keep guard. No one was allowed to enter the home. The department also sent other officers out to canvas the neighborhood to see if anyone had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary. Early returns were that nobody had seen anything. I feel like nobody ever sees anything in these scenarios. No, no. So the Glastonbury Police Department at the time, and I honestly think even still now, was considered to be one of the best trained, best staffed, and best funded departments in the state. Oh, wow. Sure, they had some experience with violent crime and maybe the occasional murder, but really nothing like this. Mm -hmm. They, too, needed some more experienced help. um, So they also called in the state police, but they called the Connecticut State Police. Mm Mm-hmm. So Detective James Cavanaugh and his partner, Detective Charles Revoir, I hope I'm saying that right. It's R-E-V-O-I-R, Revoir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to go with it. A little French pronunciation. Sounds French. They were actually playing golf on their day off. Oh. And they got a page. Remember beepers? I had a beep. My sister paid for my first beeper. It was teal. It was completely useless, and I've never been so excited about something. Beat me, beat me, if you want to reach me. That was, that. you just unlocked a core memory. I did, yeah. You did. It was wow. nostalgia. That brought me joy, thank you. You're so welcome. So the two officers, or the two detectives rather, they phoned the station to see what was up, only to learn that a woman had been found, murdered in Massachusetts. It was assumed to be this missing Connecticut woman. So at some point after the initial call to Karen, so we know that Michael Zaccaro called her, we know that Chief Brulat called her, she received another phone call from the Glastonbury Police Department requesting that she come to the station to try to help them figure out what was going on. Nobody's telling Karen at this point in time that they found a body. I was mm. just going to ask they that. They did not. Yep, okay. So despite being told to come directly to the station, Karen actually showed up at the Aparo condo. So she lived with her mother in this condo in Glastonbury, and she got there at 5 p.m., so, like, the whole day has passed. So, she's definitely taken her time to get here. What time did they call her? I don't know exactly what time. that I don't know what time they called her, but it was before 2 p.m. Because they called her the first time before the body was found. Okay. So, she, she took hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She took her time. Okay. So, she had her violin teacher, Albert Markov, drive her up to the house. And she told the officers on guard that she needed to get inside the condo because she had to get her ulcer medicine. And she also had to tend to her cats that were inside the home. She explained that she hadn't been home in almost a week and she really needed her meds and she was super worried about her cats. It's early August at this point in time, so it's really hot. She's worried that they don't have water. Nobody's been feeding them. The officers were sympathetic, but they didn't let her enter the home. So again, the officers made no mention of the body that was found earlier in the day. They simply just sent Karen on her way to the police station. Her teacher dropped her off at the police station and Detective Karen questioned Karen regarding her mother's appearance again. Karen would later say that she lied to the cops about her mother's weight because, you know, Joyce just wouldn't want them knowing what her exact weight was. So her mother was missing, and this is what she's concerned about at this point in time, but it, it's cute, endearing. Yeah, in a what a way. nice daughter. I mean, priorities. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she asked Detective Karen about her medication because, right, she she needs her ulcer mm-hmm. meds. And while he would not permit her to enter the home, he did offer to have someone call in the prescription at the local pharmacy. So it wasn't like a lie she was fabricating to get in. They really did have to fill this prescription for her. Hmm. The Glastonbury Police Department had a policy 
no female was ever to be interviewed alone by a male officer. So another woman had to be present, which very ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. This is the late 80s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. While Karen was questioned, Secretary Beverly Warga sat inside the interview room. When the interview was over, Karen asked Beverly if she could use the phone to make a couple calls. Beverly said, sure. And Karen went over and picked up the phone. It was maybe three to four feet away from where Beverly was sitting. Karen first called her father, Michael Apero, to explain that her mother was missing and she wanted her dad to come down to the station for support and, you know, just to see if he could offer any general help. Sure. Next, Karen called her boyfriend, Dennis Coleman. She told him she was back in town and that the police had sealed off her condo so she didn't have anywhere to stay tonight and she wanted to know if she could stay with Dennis. You might be wondering why Karen would not just stay with her father in this situation. So Michael and Joyce had been divorced for almost 10 years and Karen actually hadn't seen her father since the summer prior. So she just really wasn't comfortable staying with him. Um, It also wouldn't matter because Michael's new wife, so he had remarried since his divorce Mm -hmm. with Joyce, was adamant that Karen could not stay at their house. Oh, okay. And can you remind me how old Karen is? Karen is 16. Okay, thank you. So while Karen was at the station, the Massachusetts State Police called Michael Zaccaro. They too wanted a description of Joyce Zaccaro. Once he shared it with them, he was informed that the police had found a body and it matched the description he had given. They needed somebody to come and ID the body to confirm it was in fact Joyce. So Michael said the only family he was aware of was Joyce's 16-year-old daughter and the police were like, yeah, no, that's not going to work for us. We need you to come ID the body. Couldn't just have her ID him by his teeth? (laughs) No, no, no. Their teeth apparently were not that distinctive. (laughs) They're like, we think she matches, give or take 50 pounds. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, maybe if we had an accurate weight, we would know for sure. So Michael, he gathered up a small posse, his business partners, Ed Giamelli and Anne-Marie Murray, as well as Anne's husband, Philip, and they all drove up to Greenfield, Massachusetts, where the body had been moved to. On the drive up, Michael says he remembers a moment, it was raining that day, so he remembers a moment where all of the rain stopped ahead and the skies cleared and a beautiful rainbow appeared. And he said at that moment, everybody in the car looked at each other and they were like, yeah, Joyce is definitely dead. This Uh, is a sign from her. Yep. That's so bizarre. Yep. For, and they're all co-workers? Yes. yes. That's really bizarre. You would, you would get that from like a family member, not like, oh, look at the rainbow. Yeah. Yep. Our co-worker has passed. Yes. Okay. I think like a close-knit co-worker type family. Okay. So when they arrived in Greenfield, Michael was shown the body. Joyce was almost recognizable because she was so bloated, beaten, and disfigured, but he was positive that it was her. He saw everything. The pantyhose around her neck, the paper towel, all of the bruises. It was an incredibly unpleasant experience for him, one that I'm sure he has not forgotten to this day. Oh, my gosh. So a little after 6.30, Michael Apero, Karen's dad, arrived at the Glastonbury police station. It was just in time to hear the news that a body had been found, and it did match the descriptions of Joyce. The Massachusetts State Police were still waiting on Michael Zaccaro to arrive to formally identify her. So these things are kind of happening mm-hmm. in parallel, but they, they felt pretty confident that it was Joyce. This was kind of just a formality at this point to ID her. So the police broke the news to Karen that her mother had been murdered. To their surprise, Karen's response was to shed a single tear. Her um. f- Yes. Her father was in shock at the news, but he made no attempts to comfort Karen, and Karen made no attempt to seek comfort from him. So I actually totally get why she wanted to stay with her boyfriend. Like, it just wasn't, like, a very familial relationship Uh with her dad. I mean, a single tear, it doesn't sound like she needed too much comfort in any ways. Karen asked if she could go to her friend's house, and her father said he was fine with it as long as the cops would allow it, and they did. Karen also asked if she could make another phone call at this point in time. Beverly said, yeah, absolutely. And Karen once again called Dennis, her boyfriend. 
Karen tried to speak really quietly, but Beverly overheard the conversation. Where did you do it? Did you hurt your head? That's okay. You were over the house the night before. Don't worry about it. The police said the house was neat. The bed hasn't been slept in. She then told him she would get him a psychiatrist and she would be there soon to help him. Karen hung up the call and followed her father out of the police station. Beverly made a beeline for Detective yes, Karen Beverly. and Revoir, and she let him. She let them know immediately what she overheard. Mm-hmm. The detectives were intrigued, and they wanted to talk to Karen a little bit more about the conversation, but they just missed her. Her and her father had just left in the car. The cops really wanted to follow up on this conversation, though, so they actually went to the Coleman household where Karen was going to spend the night. To their surprise, they arrived and saw Michael Apero nowhere. He basically, his daughter's mother had just been killed, and he just dropped her off at her friend's house like it was nothing. So there's a weird family dynamic. Very, mm-hmm. here. very. Because even if you're not close with your daughter, if you're if her mother's been murdered, right. you're probably not like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go, Have a good go time with money. your friends, whatever. Mm-hmm. You need pizza money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pizza and wings, maybe. So... Karen and her boyfriend, Dennis, were inside the house, and they were huddled together having a very hush-hush discussion. The officers told Karen that they had some questions based on what Beverly had overheard, and they asked if Karen and Dennis would actually come to the station, and they both agreed. For the next four hours, Karen and Dennis were questioned. They were questioned separately, but left together in the interview room with Beverly to supervise them. She said that the two teens made small talk with each other. Sometimes they engaged her in the discussion. And she noticed that it, it was weird. Karen seemed to be the one that was comforting Dennis. She was holding his hand, and she was very focused on how Dennis was doing during mm. this whole thing. Beverly also overheard Karen repeat the same question she had heard Karen ask earlier on the phone. She asked Dennis if his head was okay, and then she said, you banged it on my kitchen counter when you were feeding the cats, right? <laughs> Dennis said, no, I hit my head on the stove at work. So what it sounded to Beverly like was that the two were trying to get their stories uh-huh. to align. Oh, and the cats that hadn't been fed for a week right. that she was really concerned mm-hmm. about. So yeah. she, what we will hear later is she did lie to those cops. Like yeah. the, mm-hmm. Dennis was taking care of her cats while she was gone, and she didn't okay. know this. She asked him mm-hmm. to take care of the okay. cats. Can't keep her lies straight. Can't keep them straight. Karen said she also hoped that Dennis's hand would be okay. And Dennis looked at Beverly and he just volunteered that when he was feeding the apparel's cats, one of them had bitten him. It wasn't a friendly cat. Later he was asked and he said that the cat had scratched him. And then he was asked another time and he gave a different story mm-hmm. about what happened to his hand. So Karen is just kind of trying to figure out if Dennis is feeling okay in this moment. But you know what? It seemed like they had an explanation for everything the police asked them. Even when they were questioned separately, their stories seemed to match. Mm. Sometimes they matched a little too much. Mm -hmm. So well rehearsed. So very well. Dennis was asked if Karen and her mother got along. Dennis said, you know, they had typical mother-daughter disagreements, but really nothing out of the ordinary. There was no major trouble between them. Both of them had alibis. Karen was in row in at the time of the murder, and Dennis was actually hanging out with his friends the night before. Um, Dennis had drank some beer and they had a scary movie marathon and they capped it off with watching Friday the 13th. I approve of that. I too approve of that. Love Mm -hmm. that. Dennis said he left his friend's house around 1130 p.m. and he went home and straight to bed. He had to be at work at seven the next morning. There really wasn't any time to mess around. At 130, the officers released the teens and they went back to Dennis's parents' house for the night. 130 in the morning? Yep. Okay. So it's been a long day for yeah. Karen yeah. at this point. Um, and actually, I think we should press pause on the murder right here so I can give you guys the rundown on each of our key players. Oh, yeah. So let's start with Dennis. 
Dennis was a 19-year-old from Glastonbury, Connecticut. He was, at the time, described as an all-American kind of guy, the type of boy you would want your teenage daughter to date. He was personable, good-looking, and intelligent. He had an IQ of 137. He was tall and slim. He had red hair and freckles. He was a talented musician, a bit of a computer geek, and he loved the outdoors. He enjoyed skiing, sailing, hiking, camping, anything, you name it. He came from a very affluent family. His dad owned his own computer consulting company, and Dennis worked for him part-time for a while. Dennis didn't go to college, but he had enrolled in Central Connecticut State University, and he was planning to attend in the fall. See, when he graduated from high school, he chose to just enter the workforce, um, and Dennis got a job as a computer programmer hmm. at Aetna, which is one of the insurance companies in Hartford and a former employer of mine, so I thought that was a cool little grim fact. Hmm. Yep. We walked the same halls. <laughs> <laughs> Spooky. <laughs> so Dennis and Karen had been dating for a little bit over a year at this time. Um, they had met when Joyce was actually having car trouble in the parking lot of the condo complex they lived in. And she saw Dennis working on his car. So she encouraged Karen to go talk to him and see if she could help him out. <sighs> Dennis was more than happy to oblige. And he quickly endeared himself to Karen and her mother. Dennis loved Karen so, so, so deeply. And he just knew that the two of them were going to get married someday and they were going to have the best life together. Oh, teenage love. Can you remind me how old he is? 19. Dennis is 19. 19, right? And yeah, Karen is he graduated. 16. Okay, yep. thank you. But you know what? Karen might have had other plans. So Karen had lived most of her life also in Glastonbury, Connecticut, except for one year when she was 12. That was absolutely nightmarish. We do not have time to get into that. But <laughs> she had a, her mother's third marriage was not good for Karen. Oh, Karen was a little plump and a bit buxom and very, very concerned about her weight, unconvinced that her baby fat would ever go away. She had short, dark hair, deep brown eyes, and she often wore glasses. Most people would have considered Karen traditionally attractive. She was also bright. She had an IQ of 131. Her mother had long envisioned that Karen would be a successful concert violinist, and she drove her hard on the path to achieving that goal. Karen was described as having a sexual aura that affected men of all ages who came into her orbit. Like, who is, who is, like des- like, yeah, who is describing her that way? One of the cops who interviewed her. <gasps> I don't like that. He and he said, and I quote, "You spent a couple hours with that girl, and you wanted to jump her bones." <gasps> what? what? Big time ick. The what? Only, the I, only thing I will knock the police for in this yeah, case. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. What the fuck? I don't know. I did not see that coming. No. What? So, so Karen, so the reason I included that is I wanted to try to illustrate that Karen seemingly has this power over men, right? Like mm-hmm. she's very captivating. Okay. I'm, she's also 16. She is also yeah, 16. Yeah, I'm like, I'm really disturbed that a police officer I would see, say that. I see why you included it in the story. I'm yes. just angry at the police a for that. Sexual aura? Just sexual never... aura. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. We will talk later about Karen and Dennis's relationship, but I want to try to explain Joyce Aparo to you guys. Okay. She, oh she is complex. She has many layers. Is she like an onion? She is like an onion. Okay. Does she make you cry? She does, yes. She makes Karen cry a lot. Oh, oh so, no. Joyce was a woman who was estranged from her family, like her parents and her siblings. Mm-hmm. She was married three times and divorced just as many. She kept most people at a distance, and she really didn't offer them a look into her private life. You know how when somebody dies, everyone says their smile lit up a room mm. and they were so great and this and that. Mm-hmm. That's not Joyce Aparo. She oh, was geez. the total opposite of that. She was a lot to deal with and she could be incredibly manipulative. Who you were and what she wanted from you greatly influenced the version of Joyce that you got. Interesting. Mm. So to illustrate, 
To her co-workers, Joyce was a brilliant woman, an extraordinary administer, incorruptible. She was imaginative. She was a perfectionist. She was intolerant of anything less than total dedication from those around her. She was caring and concerned for those who depended on her. She rarely offered her co-workers a glimpse into her personal life. And when she did, she talked only about her daughter and how proud she was of her talents. To her friends, of which there were very, very few, she was also a brilliant woman, lively and fun to be with, knowledgeable, perhaps opinionated. She was an expert at anything she put her hand to. She was a perfectionist who insisted on only the very best for herself. She could be a good listener and a sounding board, though she rarely shared her feelings and problems. She more like helped her friends in that regard. Um, again, when she talked about her personal life to her friends, it was always about her very talented daughter. To her neighbors, she was cold and foreboding, a woman who built oh. up walls around herself. She wanted to keep others out because she considered her and her daughter to be superior to everyone else. The inferiors were not even worth socializing with. They found, they found Joyce to be cruel and abusive, not just to them, but, is, but also to her daughter, especially to her daughter. Okay, I was oh. with you until the yep. like abusive yep. part. They actually likened Joyce to the Wicked Witch of the West. And at one point, Joyce actually told them she was a witch and somebody believed her. Like, that, that's how bad <laughs> she was. Okay. To her former husbands, Joyce was bright but domineering. She would not take orders from anyone, but she gave orders to all. <laughs> she was manipulative, abusive, scathing in her criticism and actions. She was unbearable, rigid, and impossible to live with. I wonder why their marriages didn't last. I know. Maybe, you know, maybe it was her personality. It was a mystery. Mm. To her daughter, she was the mother who taught her how to knit, cook, and make strawberry jam. She shared her dreams and fantasies, and she had put the violin in Karen's hand and sacrificed a lot so Karen could continue to grow and develop her skills. Mm. But she was also the mother who rarely, if ever, showed affection. She abused her daughter physically until the time that her daughter was 12 and then emotionally up until the time of her death. Mm. She was intolerant of any mistakes or anything she perceived to be less than perfection. Joyce mm. isolated Karen from much of the world and trapped her in a home life that was unendurable and from which Karen felt she had no escape. Oh. There was something else, too. Joyce was a pathological liar. Oh, oh God. She was a woman who invented so many stories, it was impossible to know the truth. Perhaps even to the point where Joyce herself had forgotten mm. what the truth was. Oh, boy. So I want to get a bit more into Joyce's background and give you guys a few different examples of the kinds of lies that she told, but just give you a little bit of insight to how Joyce grew up. Mm. So Joyce was born in 1939. She was the youngest child of a lower middle class Italian family. There were several years between her and her siblings, several of which were already adults by the time she was born. She grew up in a small Hartford, Connecticut home. Her father was a day laborer and a drinker. When he drank, he would vent his frustrations on her and her mother. Mm. He'd get physical. He'd beat her mother, sometimes her, but more her mother. It's Joy a family tradition. <laughs> Joyce would actually often beg her mother to divorce her father, but being a devout Catholic family, divorce just was not an option. Mm. But one day, her mother met another man that she fell in love with. This man had promised to marry her if she could somehow leave her husband. Her mother was torn, and she went to the church for counseling. A priest came to their home and spread incense around the apartment to ward off the evil feelings of wanting to leave her husband. Joyce was flabbergasted. How could the church think that they could control somebody's life like this? She was so mad that she took the priest's hat and she threw it out the window. <laughs> okay. I think that this is where her lifelong beef with the Catholic Church began because she has like a grudge against mm. religion. 
Her mother, though, remained married to her father until her father eventually passed away as a result of his alcoholism. Or at least that was one story she told people. Oh, boy. Another story that she told, particularly to her daughter, was that her father was a gifted musician, a superb pianist who was destined for the stage. But his wife belittled his dreams. In this version of the tale, her mother was the abusive one, both emotionally and physically. Guys, I could honestly go on for another 15 to 20 minutes and lay out different (laughs) stories of her childhood. It seems like, again, it changed to fit whatever narrative she was trying to spin. So we don't actually know. So we don't actually know how her childhood was. But what we do know is that Joyce did go to college. She went to what is now known as the University of Hartford. Shortly after graduation, she married a man named Robert White. She and her new husband moved to New Haven, and Joyce continued her education. She took graduate classes in social work at Yale. This first marriage lasted five years. In some ways, it was always destined to fail. Robert wanted a family, and children were not part of Joyce's plan. She had chosen a career over motherhood, and Robert was not going to change that. Robert wanted to be the head of the household and make all of the decisions. Joyce was having none of that. I was just going to say that. That is not for her. No one told Joyce Aparo what to do. After the divorce, she moved to East Hartford, Connecticut, where she got a job working for the state's Department of Child and Youth Services. That does not seem like a match for her personality. It doesn't. <laughs> like, how do, you, how do you land there? But you know what's interesting is Joyce didn't tell people she was divorced. Joyce told people she was widowed. She Aww. said that her husband had committed suicide. She had come home one day to discover him dead. He had shot himself. There was blood everywhere. The, the floors, the walls. It's actually why she can't bear to have wallpaper in her house because it just conjures up such a gruesome memory for her. Come on, Joyce. What? Get it together. But Robert wasn't dead. He was very much alive and well. Free from Joyce. I was going to say very well. This is very a coworker well. where you hear something and you're like, that. That doesn't sound right. And you do a deep dive and you're like, I think they're full of shit. Yeah. yeah and then you stay far, far away. Yes. Yep. But like, why would Joyce create such a story? I, that's what I'm wondering. I Like, because nothing in her child. Well, I mean, it doesn't sound like she had a great childhood, maybe. But it, I don't know. It, why? I have a thought. Oh. Maybe it was because it was frowned upon to be a divorced woman. But mm. a widow. Now that True. was a whole different story. True. Mm. Especially when we talk about her second husband. So in 1966, Joyce met a man named Michael Apparel. Michael had been studying the priesthood, but ultimately left to become a social worker at the city's Catholic charities. Joyce herself was also a social worker at the time, so the two got to know each other through their jobs. Didn't she hate the Catholic Church, though? She did, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem, again, doesn't seem like a doesn't good match. Doesn't seem like the right place for her. Keep your no. friends close and your enemies closer. Okay. <laughs> oh, you know what? That might have been some of it, actually. Uh-huh. She's like, I've got my eye on you. Yeah. Michael just thought that Joyce was the most beautiful, most intelligent woman he had ever laid eyes on, and he fell madly, hopelessly in love with her. Did she have a sexual aura? I bet she did, yes. (laughs) They got married. Like mother, like daughter? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Gross. They got married, and it was again speculated that she had made up the suicide story because Michael, a devout Catholic, would never have married a divorced woman. We we do have a theme of people just marrying people very like, quickly within a year. Yeah, mm-hmm. and maybe divorcing them, maybe not. Maybe lying about their whereabouts, maybe not. Maybe bigamy. I don't yeah. know. Maybe. That's what I'm saying. So through her new husband, Joyce came to know the Archbishop John Whelan pretty well too. I would hmm. say Joyce wrote to him often, telling him the details of her life, asking him for advice and guidance. And Joyce kept every letter that he sent her. 
again, weird because she opposes the Catholic Church and religion, but she's building this relationship with the Archbishop. She's scheming. She's scheming, isn't she? I was kidding about Mm. the friends and enemy thing, but now I'm feeling that that's accurate. I feel like she's scheming. Yeah. So Joyce embellished on how she ended up with Michael. Because why why not, right? One right, alternate sure. tale that she told was that she met him when he was home from Rome, where he was studying for the priesthood. And again, he fell hopelessly in love with her, and his dedication to the priesthood was no more. Another story that Joyce told was that she actually met the archbishop first, and it was his love for her that transcended his priestly vows of celibacy. And the two began an affair that would run on and off for the duration of Joyce's life. In this version of the tale... The archbishop had Michael marry Joyce to cover up the affair, and in return, he made Michael a deacon. Regardless of how all of this happened, Michael and Joyce were married for almost a decade. Oh, jeez. Throughout their marriage, Michael states that he was the victim of abuse, mostly verbal and psychological, but occasionally physical. He feels like Joyce's great intelligence ended up serving her cruelty. Mm-hmm. So this is another person who used her talents for evil. Mm. If they just only used it for good. These high We IQs. wouldn't be telling these cases right? on True. this podcast. True. Remember how I said that children were not part of the plan for Joyce, mm. but we've been talking about her daughter? Yeah. So in the middle of 1970, she found out she was pregnant. She was furious. She oh, blamed boy. her husband. He must have tricked her somehow because he was the one that wanted this, not her. She was on birth control. She was tricked. I thought you were going to say, we weren't using protection, and I have no idea, after having sex with this man, how I got pregnant. You, the, It must be the work of the devil. Yes. Immaculate well. conception. <laughs> <laughs> she actually initially threatened to abort the child, which, again, with her husband, yeah. somebody who was studying for the priesthood, like that's like an inconceivable thought. Right. So he begged her to reconsider, and he even asked her to go to therapy, and she did actually change her mind. She was going to keep the kid. So, on February 12th, 1971, Joyce gave birth to Karen Elizabeth Apero. Side note, guess who's Karen? Guess who Karen's godfather was? The Archbishop. You got it. Archbishop uh, Wayland. Also, I said the same thing you did. So, guys, I know this is going to come as a surprise to you, but Joyce was not super into being a mom. Oh, she wasn't, like, really maternal and loving no. and caring and, wow, shocking. She was largely uninterested in Karen. <sighs> She actually even entertained allowing her brother to adopt Karen, but he would have to do so with the stipulation that Joyce made all major life decisions regarding her. As Joyce does. What the hell? Her brother, yeah, her brother was like, "Mm, not how this is going to work. You're like, I don't want this kid, but I want to make all important decisions about this kid. She just wants control. I think so. I think a lot of it's about control for Joyce. She stinks. You, you guys are really not going to be a fan of her. Oh, it's going to get worse, done. I know, but I already don't like her. So again, right, Joyce wanted to focus on her career. So she hired a nanny to care for Karen during the day, and she ordered her husband to change, feed, and care for their daughter at night. Multiple family members saw Joyce physically abuse Karen. Oh. She would frequently slap her. As Karen got older, Joyce's signature move would be to slap Karen with an open palm on one cheek and then hit her with a backhand on the other. Oh, my God. Fuck her. The physical abuse did eventually stop right around when Karen turned 12. I I couldn't find a real reason for why it stopped Mm. at this point in time. My guess is maybe just like Karen could have fought back. It's harder to abuse somebody that age. That's really fucked up, though, to like be abusing a toddler and a child and then it's like when they're older you stop and then you switch to mental abuse you know what this reminds me of um have you read a child called it oh god i can't that's it it's giving me those Mm. vibes of just 
atrocious abuse. So I've got a very grim fact for you guys here. So Karen said her earliest memory of her mother is actually of her slapping her when she was four years old. And these were not harmless smacks. They had force behind them, sometimes enough to send Karen flying across the room. Oh, my God. Some people witnessed the abuse, and they did try to say something, but Joyce usually responded by biting their head off and telling them to mind their own business. Mind your business. Mind your business. This breaks my heart for poor Karen. Yeah. On top of the issues she had with abusing her daughter, Joyce and her husband argued constantly. According to Joyce, it was because Michael never got over letting go of the priesthood, and she thought he was obsessed with religion. Now, I I will say, not in Joyce's defense, but to sort of illustrate how Michael was, like he had built a prayer shrine in their bedroom. So I I do agree that he never really let go of the Mm -hmm. priesthood, but... You know, you knew what you were getting into. I was just going to say, you know what you married. Exactly. Michael, though, he says they actually fought over her treatment of Karen. One fight of note was when Karen had spilled some juice from a bowl of strawberries and Joyce began violently beating Karen. It was so bad that Michael physically separated them, pushing Joyce. Joyce accused him of battering her. And a few days later, she served him with divorce papers. Oh, my God. Mm Mm-hmm. Michael had never been more relieved in his life. I bet. As a devout Catholic man, he never would have initiated the process, but boy, was he glad to comply with the divorce now. Mm-hmm. Joyce and Karen moved to a condo in Glastonbury on Butternut Lane, which I just thought that was such a cute name for mm-hmm. a road, Butternut like Lane. That. And this is the condo we were talking about earlier. Okay. So for a while, Karen saw her father on the weekends, but after he remarried, he started to see her less and less. You know what? Fuck that. Because you know what your ex-wife Again. is doing yep. to your child. It's it, And I'm not saying it'll be okay if it was a stepchild. However, that is your blood. And you're just like, well, yep, I'm just going to leave you in this abusive household. Good luck. That really makes me angry. It, a lot of things make me angry that nobody intervened at yeah. different points mm-hmm. in this whole case. And I, I think you guys will also be angry the more that I kind of divulge here. Wow. Um, Joyce was constantly complaining that Karen was gifted and she needed to be challenged more than she was being challenged currently. One of her teachers suggested trying to get Karen into music. And this was when Joyce had the idea that she would buy Karen her first violin. Couldn't play the piano, couldn't play another another instrument. It had to be the violin. The okay. violin would be a source of much mother-daughter bonding over the years. So this was a good thing, right? Joyce- By bonding, do you mean like beatings or actual bonding? A little bit of both. Okay. A little bit of both. Bonding through trauma. Mm-hmm. Yes, shared trauma. Nothing bonds you like that. Mm-hmm. Joyce enrolled Karen in the Julius Hart School of Music in Hartford, and it was the most prominent music school in the community. Joyce was incredibly tough on Karen, forcing her to practice a minimum of an hour a day in front of her. For reference, Karen's five years old when she starts playing oh the violin. Oh, my God. One of her teachers remembers Joyce having Karen play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star for her after she had only had four lessons. And when Karen finished, her teacher applauded her, but Joyce flipped out, asking how she could possibly encourage the mistakes that Karen made. Oh, my God. I just have a grim fact for you. Mm-hmm. Um I tried to play the viola and I tried to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and I couldn't do it almost immediately <laughs> and was basically like, fuck this shit and never picked up a viola ever again. Perhaps oh. you needed an so, abusive mother yeah, to encourage you. Perhaps. Kudos, kudos to Karen for persevering. When Karen was six years old, Joyce expected her to be self-sufficient. 
Joyce left for work before Karen left for school in the morning. Uh, what? What? Karen was expected to wait at the bus stop alone to go to school. Oh my God, she's six. To come home again, again alone, and complete the daily chores that were assigned to her by her mother. I'm so sad for her. The neighbors began to notice that Karen wasn't getting on the bus. Um, instead, she was just going back inside of her house and skipping school. Oh. So the teachers asked Joyce about it. And Joyce said, oh, Karen must be bored with school, you know, because everything's beneath her. And she encouraged a teacher to shadow Karen for a day at home just to see for herself how smart and capable her daughter was. The teacher did take Joyce up on that offer and she did learn some things and most of them disturbed her. Where was DCF? Yeah, really? They get called multiple times in this. Okay, all right. It makes me feel a little bit better, I guess, but... Mm. But what, the fuck? what I will say is Joyce is a social worker and she works for the Department of Youth and Child Services. So Joyce knows how to navigate these conversations. Oh, mm, but you're leaving a six year old unattended at home. Come on. Yeah. Mm? This is not a close call. <laughs> <laughs> no. But somehow she got away with it. So what the teacher saw was that Karen spent most of her free time in her closet, retreating Aww. into a fort filled with her stuffed animals. Being alone in the house after dark scared her, and this was her safe space. I'm literally going to cry. I am not trying to make you cry two recordings in a row. I'm so sorry. I'm literally going to cry. That's so heartbreaking. So the teacher asked Karen, you know, why don't you want to go to school? And Karen said that her mother said she could not talk to or be friends with any of the other children because they were all beneath her. Oh, my God. It's just not good. Another time, Joyce backhanded Karen in front of a teacher. I think it was the same one. And it was enough that the teacher did call the Department of Child and Youth Services. But like I said, Joyce was really oh, well-versed no. in the vocabulary of the department. Maybe she even had some friends over there. And she was always able to explain everything away. People were really worried about Karen. She was always dressed perfectly, but somber and depressed. It was like her outward appearance had to be perfect to appease her mother, but she couldn't. She's six, right? So she couldn't mm. fake how she felt. Joyce was terrible to Karen. Karen could never, ever live up to the Im immense pressures and expectations that Joyce had put on her. I read multiple accounts of neighbors witnessing Joyce punching Karen in the oh. face, <gasps> dragging God. her, beating her with the violin. So... Like you guys, my heart really broke for young Karen. And you know what? I'm kind of thinking Joyce sucks a bit, right? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm on board with that. Bit of an understatement. She yeah. sucks a lot. Yeah. Joyce never showed Karen affection, like ever. I would guess that Karen longed to hear her mother say she was proud of her. Like, I feel like that's oh. the kind of relationship that they had. Joyce wanted all of the best things in life. And her daughter, of course, had to also have the same. Ask, except for love except and attention for love, yes. and normal things. Love is not a good thing in life. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. As Karen got older, this want for the best in life extended to the men in Karen's life as well. For a while, Joyce was obsessed with the idea of Karen marrying her boss and friend, Michael Zaccaro. Mike. Yep. Yep. Mike, what was the age gap? I'm going to tell you. Oh, okay. Michael was 29 when Karen was 16. So he is 13 years her senior. Mm. Joyce tried for years to get Michael to see that Karen could be perfect for him. If only he could just wait for her to grow up. Um, yeah. What? Joyce often told Karen that Michael was smitten with her and he was planning to ask her to marry him when she was old enough. Of course, none of this is true because Michael Zaccaro is not a creeper. He was just a good man who was oh. mixed up in all of Joyce's crazy. But this was the tale that she told her daughter. And she he was her coworker, right? So he got the like 
aside from having her try to marry off her daughter, the, he got the brilliant Joyce, the nice yes. Joyce, right? Yes, so, he is her boss, actually. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. Before her death, Joyce would actually encourage another relationship, that of Karen and 24-year-old Alex Markoff, her violin teacher's son and a straight-up violin prodigy. Alex was the personification of Joyce's fantasies for Karen. Alex was successful and on the edge of greater renown. Joyce thought that Alex was handsome, young, and exotic. Alex was in demand for violin performances on the concert stage and at festivals around the world. Joyce saw him as Karen's perfect match, finally someone that was good enough for her daughter. In fact, Joyce was so into making this relationship happen that she once told Karen that she wouldn't mind if Alex got her into bed. Just make sure I don't become a grandmother. Okay. I mean, eight years isn't as bad as the 13, but mm. when you're talking about a 16-year-old, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a problem. It's a bit of a problem. It's a problem. And it wasn't just Karen she shared these thoughts with. It was Alex, too. So any chance Joyce had to talk to him, she used to tell him how talented and how great Karen was and how she was beautiful and how she was so into him. Joyce was a regular old meddling mother. Ugh. Regular? Yeah, just kidding. Not regular. A mother something, but not a yeah. mother. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. A mother something. As Karen got older, tensions between her and her mother only increased. The violin had long been a subject that provided a reprieve for Karen. Sure, Joyce may have made her practice an absurd amount, but she was always so proud of her daughter. There was just one small problem. Karen really wasn't as good at the violin as her mother thought. Um, she had been playing from the time she was five years old. So while she was very good, she wasn't quite great. I think all of the time that Karen spent with Alex Markov really illuminated this for her because like we, you guys should look up Alex. I looked Mm. him up. He still plays violin. He is actually incredibly talented. Um, Karen wanted a different future for herself than the one that she and Joyce had always talked about. Instead of wanting to be a famous concert violinist, Karen wanted to pursue a degree in psychology. Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) Yeah, right. Karen always kept journals, and she wrote a lot in them. She wrote about her relationship with Dennis, their plans for the future, how unbearable Joyce could make life for her. She kept a particularly detailed journal in July of 1987, and this journal would prove very useful later on. Mm -hmm. Karen and Dennis also had a habit of exchanging letters, which both of them kept. These two would prove very useful Mm. later on. So I am going to use what I know from all of these writings, plus some interviews with those that were involved in the case, to lay out a timeline leading up to Joyce's death. And we're going to start in the summer of 1987. So like any other teenage girl, the majority of what Karen wrote in her journals was centered around her love interests, Mm. or perhaps I should say interests, plural. You see, Alex Markov was not just someone that Joyce wanted to pair her with. He was someone that Karen actively pursued, Hmm. despite being in a relationship with Dennis Coleman for over a year. Mm -hmm. The pair, Alex and Karen, had been spending a lot more time together recently, and Karen was convinced they were on the edge of something happening. And you know what? She wasn't wrong. Dennis had also noticed this, and he had grown increasingly jealous and impatient with the amount Alex was around his girlfriend. Hmm. Karen knew her days with Alex were numbered as he was going to be leaving to start an international tour in August. So she needed to find a way to make the most of the time they had. She knew that Dennis would only complicate things for her. It didn't take her all that long to come up with a plan. She told Dennis that she wanted to break up with him because she was in love with Alex. And this destroyed Dennis to Mm. hear. He pleaded with her to reconsider and she did. But instead she told him that she thought they should take a break for a month. Oh, One where they didn't see each other and they didn't even talk at all. 
She <laughs> promised him, though, at the end of a month's time, they would be back together and better than ever. A break at that age is just code for I want to see other people yes. and I need to get out of this and don't know how to break up with someone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor Dennis, though. He loved Karen so much that he agreed. He would do anything for her, but it ate away at him. I honestly don't know if she ever really intended to end things with Dennis or if her objective was to literally get him to give her a hall pass. But I am kind of leaning towards hall pass here. I think so. Because I think she wanted to keep Dennis on the back burner. Right. So Dennis spent their month apart physically sick over their separation. Oh, he lost 20 pounds. Oh, my my God. He developed ulcers. He, he cried constantly. Wasn't he like 18 at this time or mm-hmm. 19? Yep. Yep. He's like 18, 19. <gasps> okay. That's intense. He thought about the things he could do in the month, things he could do for her and things he could present her with when they were finally reunited. Mm-hmm. You know, he could fix up his car. He could write her songs. He could save up all of his money to buy her some elaborate trinket. He could murder her mother. Exactly. That's you know, my mind went. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a side note, because I, I don't know where else this would fit into the case, but I wanted to share it. Dennis spent $10,000 on gifts for Karen, even buying her multiple diamond rings. How, wh- where, where is that money coming from? Banks. Dennis worked. So he had, I don't know if this is the exact number, but he was making almost $400 a week at Aetna. Uh, oh. when he was working there. So he was making good money oh, for somebody his okay. age. So he has a job. Yeah. He's not in college. I forgot about that. That's right. And okay. he also sometimes still, works for his dad. That yeah. still takes a lot of savings. Yeah. At that age. Like, I guess yes. he's not really saving it. He's, he's not spending really saving it. Yeah. He's spending yeah. it. Um, I want to read you guys part of one of Dennis's letters just so you can get a feel for his state of mind right after this happened. So he said, I'm living on your promise that you'll come back and stay back living on it i miss you i wonder about it care about the years we could have all i need is your love and faith oh please please need me i'm so scared love me i love you i'm so sad for dennis i'm also i'm uncomfortable i I don't know what direction everything's going i don't know (laughs) but i still i feel really sad for dennis i mean he's a little bit older but i'm thinking of young love and that desperate feeling and you know she didn't cut she didn't sever the ties you know so he has he's he's living on a hope and a prayer and it's so sad i know i 16 to 19 is a pretty big age gap those those three years are pretty critical like i think at this stage in our life three years is nothing but at that point it is the difference between somebody who is an adult in the workforce Uh and somebody who is very much a high school exactly so that's where that's where i'm not fully not fully feeling it but still but again he's just so sad he's sad yeah he loves he loves her a lot yeah So as the month went on, Karen could actually see how upset Dennis was getting because it was taking a physical toll Mm. on him. Um, And they lived in the same condo complex. So even though they weren't supposed to be seeing each other, like it was kind of unavoidable. Like Mm -hmm. they saw each other when they were going to their houses. So Karen, being the soft hearted woman that she was, she said, you know what? We can see each other again, but no more sex for a while. Okay. I know. Right. Again, like mother, like daughter, she's like, it's fine. I'll just completely control the situation mm-hmm. yep. and manipulate you and do whatever I want for my own benefit. Okay. Love okay, you. Bye. Love you. <laughs> it's fucked up. Karen did say she was really sorry about how difficult the month had been on him, but she didn't understand why he allowed himself to get this upset over her. Oh, fuck. Fuck everyone in this whole I case. God damn. A couple weeks later, even though they were still on a break, Dennis wanted to do something special for Karen when the school year ended because that's just the kind of guy he was. So he rented a Bentley. He drove it to the high school. I'm sorry, what? Mm-hmm. That's not all. 
He filled the back seat with flowers, full of flowers. And in the middle of the flowers was an expensive golden bracelet he had bought for Karen. Karen accepted the gifts, but she told Dennis she was a little bit disappointed. She didn't understand why he rented a Bentley and not a Rolls Royce. <laughs> who, who are these people? What a little bitch, who right? Who are like, these people? What? So. Wow. I, I think you guys see where this is going. Karen was without a doubt playing Dennis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She used him to get what she wanted when she wanted it. And she didn't really care who knew it. Um, remember how at the end of a school year, you'd get your yearbook and people were always like really excited to sign each other's yearbooks. Hags. Yeah. <laughs> What did you say? You, you have unlocked another core memory Hags. for me. Have a have great, a great summer. summer. No, I never wrote that. What? I didn't know that acronym. What? Hags. Oh my God. Hags. Keep in touch. Hashtag. You never kept in touch. No. <laughs> hashtag never. was not, not appropriate. A, not a thing. No. Ah. No. We said hags. Not <laughs> hashtags. <laughs> but you never kept in touch. Well. <laughs> I got that the first time. Thanks. Uh, Karen left a sweet little note in her friend Kira's yearbook. So she said that Kira and her boyfriend Chris were so great together and that she and Dennis would never have what they had. She also told her that she expects to be in Chris and Kira's wedding party someday, and she's going to return the favor by having Kira in her wedding. But not to Dennis. With to Alex. Alex. Yeah. She continued, he's Russian, as you know, with an accent that could stop a train, a body that stops my heart in just the sweetest disposition in the world. I haven't gotten him yet, but I soon will. You can be sure. Do you know how glad I am that none of my writings from 16 year old, <laughs> 16 years old are on this podcast? So very glad. They sound about like that. It's rough. Oh, you know, though, in her journal, in Karen's journal, she did write what she thought about each of the boys. So for Alex, she wrote, he was strong, self-sufficient, talented, dominating, and independent. He's strong like bull. <laughs> like ox. <laughs> Dennis was weak, Aww. dominated, clinging desperately, Aww. doing anything he could to hold on to her, and he was easily manipulated. Wow. Karen also wrote down how she saw herself, you know, very reflective, not just going to talk about others, <laughs> mm-hmm. going to talk about her. She was, quote, 16, a terrible violinist, in love with nobody, having an affair with Alex Markov, seeing Dennis casually, and she was very fat and weight conscious. Fascinating. I actually found it very interesting that she was juggling multiple guys and she was still, like, totally lacking self-esteem and self-worth because a lot of girls her age would probably base their self-worth on their ability to, like, have a boyfriend. And Karen's like, I got two, but I'm fat and ugly and I suck. She was not any of those things. No, yeah. Karen had like, I would say like baby fat, basically. Yeah. Like she wasn't like a big girl. She just, you know, had a little bit of extra dough on her still. I mean, she had a really loving, supportive mother Mm -hmm. who really helped with her self-esteem and body image. So in general health and happiness. I don't remember if I actually put it in my notes, but Joyce would often pick on Karen's weight. I I figure. Yep. It was probably the kind of thing where, like, Karen had been on some form of a diet, like, as long as she could remember. Mm -hmm. Karen spent most of July traveling with the Markovs, sometimes on a vacation, and other times it was to watch Alex perform. During one trip with Alex, Karen saw a diamond ring in a jewelry shop, and she just had to have it. This is one of the rings Dennis buys her. So she calls Dennis, and she tells him all about it, and the very next day, he sent over a money order to buy it for her. Alex overheard this phone call and he was furious. How could Karen have another man buying her a ring? He was out with her. He told her that she was being very unfair to both of them and she was ruining their vacation. I don't know how she managed to, but she diffused the situation. What? 
I'm not sure if Karen ever asked her to, but Joyce actually kept Dennis company a lot while Karen was with Alex. Sometimes Joyce would ask Dennis to run errands with her, like go to the grocery store. Other times she would ask him to join her for dinner in a movie. It was almost like Joyce had to pay attention to Karen to Dennis because Karen wasn't. It was kind of weird. This Very is weird. really twisted. Very weird. Yeah, honestly, it, it feels like it was some sort of unspoken agreement to continue to string Dennis along. Ugh. And Joyce wanted her to be with Alex, so yes. she was she was letting her manipulate Dennis to get all of the goods. Yes while ensuring that she ultimately ended up with Alex. Yep. Wow, what a mother-daughter duo. Great duo. How wonderful. While Joyce and Dennis were together, Joyce talked about Karen nonstop, which I am sure was just so great for poor Dennis's mental health at this point in time. And Joyce loved it, too, because she just thought she was the moon and stars. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. But you know what? Joyce was always really very friendly towards Dennis. But I think deep down, she never felt like he was good enough for her daughter. From what I read, she never really openly discouraged their relationship. It was more just that she didn't gush about Dennis the way that she gushed about other would-be suitors, or at least other would-be suitors in Joyce's opinion right, right, in right. Karen's life. She often told Dennis that she just wanted what was best for her daughter. That's why she was so hard on her. And she would do anything to make that happen. According to Karen, Joyce was trying to break her and Dennis up. But Dennis said he never felt like she was trying to warn him off. If she was, she really had a funny way of doing it. She maybe once or twice told the two of them to cool it, but that was understandable. She had once found a note about the first time that Dennis and Karen had made love. And I don't think Joyce was ready for that because Karen was 15 at the time and Dennis was 18. So she told them to cool it. Like, guys, stop sleeping together, but you could still date. Like, just stop doing this. Are you aware of teenagers and hormones and how that does (laughs) not work? (laughs) Yeah. So no matter how busy Dennis tried to stay and no matter how much Joyce entertained him, he just couldn't do enough to quiet his mind. So he finally one day asked Karen about her relationship with Alex. He he said he needed to know if they had slept together. Karen told him they slept together, but it was just one time. She just had to get it out of her system and the two, they were just platonic pals. In reality, at this point, she had slept with Alex like 20 times. um, And I know this because she kept weird sex tallies in her journal. Oh, Mm -hmm. as one does. Yes. Just wait till I give you guys the dentist total later. Oh, boy. So as the summer pressed on, Karen started to feel like her home life was quickly deteriorating and heading for disaster. Things had been largely civil between her and her mother for a while, but she hadn't yet told her that she no longer wanted to pursue a career as a violinist. Yeah, I wouldn't want to have that conversation either. (laughs) Karen was terrified of what her mother might say, more so of what she might do if she shattered that dream for her. I imagine that it could not have been pleasant for Karen to think about spending time with Joyce when both the violin and Alex, like two subjects Mm -hmm. they very much agreed upon, were going to be gone around the same time. So more than a month had gone by since she had initiated the break with Dennis, but they weren't back together yet. According to Dennis, shortly after Karen returned from one of her trips, Karen told him that things between her and her mother had turned bad and were going downhill very fast. She thought that she could tough it out and make it two more years until she was 18 um, and she'd be free of Joyce, but she just, she couldn't do it anymore. Karen said that her only hope of escape and her only hope for her and Dennis to ever be together was if Joyce were to die. I knew she was going to say that. Karen maintained that Joyce didn't want her and Dennis together and that Joyce was actually the driving factor behind all the time that Karen had spent with Alex. Karen didn't want to be with Alex. Her mother wanted her to be with Alex. What a manipulative bitch. Uh-huh. So Karen was conflicted and she was just trying to make her mother happy. But at the, ex- at the expense of her and Dennis's, she just couldn't bear to take it anymore. 
interestingly enough, this was not the first time that Karen had asked Dennis to kill Joyce. What? She had tried to convince him of the same the summer before. They actually had a plan and they had a date. They were going to do it, but Dennis just could not go through with it. And Karen agreed, you know what? It was for the best because she too had gotten cold feet. You know who's the real victim in this story? Poor freaking Dennis. Dennis is. He really Mm -hmm. is the victim in this story. Yeah, he really Mm -hmm. is. And it's going to be interesting when we talk about all the trials and stuff later. Oh, boy. Mm. So, despite Dennis's plea for Karen to reconsider on this occasion, she became consumed with the thought of her mother being dead. Every time she spoke to Dennis, she continued to press him on it. Dennis was so uncomfortable with the decision that he faced. The woman of his dreams was begging him to murder her mother so they could be together. He would do anything for Karen, but murder, the idea made him absolutely sick. Also, maybe Mm. it's not the woman of your dreams if she's asking you to commit murder. Just a thought. Dennis couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. He was losing even more weight, which at this point, he didn't have any extra weight to lose. His eyes were red-rimmed, and he looked like he was haunted. He was incredibly pale. Oh, God. He felt like he didn't know what to do, but he certainly knew what Karen expected him to do. Uh-huh. So I want to talk a little bit about the week leading up to Joyce's murder. And I'm going to tell the story from Karen's perspective, and I will tell it from Dennis's perspective. On Friday, July 31st, Joyce and Karen went to a party at one of the nursing homes that Joyce worked with. Remember, she was like an mm-hmm. administrator for mm-hmm. these places. That was nothing out of the ordinary. Karen often accompanied her to parties like this, probably because her mother was trying to marry her off to some future suitor. While she was at the party, she called Dennis and she expressed concern about her cats, Winston and Godfrey. Oh, great Great names, names. though. Those are great names. She said that she and her mother were not going to have a chance to come home after the party because they were planning to head to Binghamton with the Markovs very early the next day. She was afraid with how hot it was outside and that the cats would die if nobody was there to check on them. Dennis, of course, agreed Mm, that he would go over and take care of the cats. It was no trouble at all. He lived nearby and he already had a key to the condo so he could just easily let himself in. Karen says that this is the only thing they talked about on this conversation. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely not murder. No, no, no. No, for sure not. The next morning, so Saturday, August 1st, the Aperos and the Markovs drove up to Binghamton. The plan was to stay in a hotel for three days. Karen said that they had a wonderful weekend away together. Alex was the soloist and the performance they watched, and there had been a really big party afterwards, and it was just all so much fun. I do find it a little bizarre. I guess he's Alex is traveling and playing violin and, and performing, but I find it a little weird that they all travel together. I don't... Is that a thing? No, I... So... It was weird. So Karen did spend a lot of time like actually doing violin lessons with the Markovs. So Albert, Alex's dad, was her private instructor. And she also would go take classes in New York City on the weekend. So like she was very invested in playing the violin. And I think because she spent so much time with the Markovs, Joyce naturally became friends with Alex's parents. So I think part of the reason why they went away together was like it was like a fun thing for them to do. And they could all kind of like get excited about how talented their kids were. Yeah, and, and I guess they probably got the Joyce that's smart. They and got the good Joyce. Yes, yep. yeah. Okay, still. Mm. But yeah, all right. Early on the morning of Tuesday, August 4th, the group traveled back to the Markovs' home. They arrived around 4 a.m. and went to bed. At 9.30 this morning, so still on the 4th, Joyce woke Karen up to tell her she was leaving for work, and she suggested that Karen spend another night in Rowayton with the Markovs. I think that Joyce was anticipating having a long day at work, and she was probably trying to encourage Karen to make the most of her final days with Alex, right? Trying to give them their Mm. time to do whatever they need to do, but not make her a grandmother. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's why she suggested that she stay there. And she told her that she would come get her the following morning. 
So Karen called Dennis to let him know she was back in Connecticut, but she wasn't home. According to Karen, Dennis was very upset. He demanded a reason for staying at the Markovs, and she just said, you know, my mom's forcing me to. Mm. But we know that Karen actually wanted to be there. Dennis told her he had left her a note between the sheets of her bed when he was there feeding the cats on Monday. He was concerned that Joyce would find it, but Karen said that was a safe place. Joyce would never look there. Later in the day, Joyce called Karen to let her know she was making a chore list for her to do when she got home. Of course. How considerate. Joyce complained about the home being filthy, saying that Karen needed to clean it as soon as she got back home, and it would be best if Alex could bring her home in the morning, since now Joyce herself could not get Karen until after work. Karen called Dennis and let him know about the further delay in her plans and also her mother's demands. Dennis was very unhappy about this, and he sounded very upset on the phone. Later that same night, Karen spoke to her mother, again, who shared that Karen's best friend Shannon had called about spending the night on Wednesday, and Joyce was going to allow that to happen only if Karen finished her chores first. Mm -hmm. Joyce also mentioned that she was very tired and she was going to bed early. It was somewhere around 8.30. That would be the last time that Karen ever spoke to her mother. Karen recalls that her feelings towards her mom at this moment were great. Just great. Oh, she just mm. loved her. She just loved her in this moment. Loved her. Yep. At 9 p.m., Dennis called Karen and again mentioned that he didn't understand why she was staying there. Why couldn't he come get her? Under the impression that Joyce is having her stay there because she's forcing in her into a relationship with Alex rather than Dennis, Dennis allegedly said, if she's making you stay there, she's coming between us. I think I should kill her. When you come back, you'll never have to go to row eight in again. Oh, my God. Yeah, Dennis definitely said that. He so, definitely said definitely. that. So Karen said mm, she stayed up for a little bit longer after their call because she was like a little worried, but she eventually turned it. <laughs> mm -hmm. The next morning, Wednesday, August 5th, Karen received the phone call from Michael Zaccaro telling mm -hmm. her that her mother's car had been found, but her mother was still missing. How peculiar. Dennis's memory of the week is a bit different and a lot more detailed. You don't say. But for that, my dears, you're going to have to wait until our no. next episode. Oh, I'm mad. I thought I'm you were going to tell us that before the next episode. I'm oh. so mad. Like, we're, we're part. Can, can you tell us after? You I come? can tell you guys. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, we'll wait. Sorry, gremlins. We're on the inside. We got the inside track. <laughs> so what do you guys think so far? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts. So <laughs> so I think at, at the tail end of this, this episode, I am thinking that Karen's terrible and you know plotting death and all that but in the beginning of this episode we were feeling really bad for her because she was neglected and abused yep. severely abused as a child so there's only some like i feel like there's only so much that's ultimately her fault like how could you not be homicidal and and a psychopath with right. joyce as your mother so i'm very curious i wish we knew more as to you know well maybe we'll know about like Oh, no, no, we won't because she's dead. <laughs> I was going to say about like, I'd love to have a psychiatrist look at what, uh, Joy how Joyce was raised and why she's a psycho and all that. But um, I do know, like, I have diagnoses for Joyce that okay, I can share with you guys later. Yeah, because, I, yeah, I think, so I, I think Karen is very much at fault for things right now, but yeah. I can see why with Joyce as her mother. I'm still not... I think that Dennis is a, a little off his rocker himself because I understand at 15, maybe being obsessive and right, you know, like 
yep. I don't know, young love and all that. But 19, you're starting to like, you're an adult at that point. I mean, a young adult, but you're an adult. And Karen wasn't his first girlfriend. Yeah. Dennis was actually like a pretty popular guy yeah. in high school. He, he sounded a, like a catch. He, yeah, yeah. He's, he's brilliant. Like yeah. he was in a rock band. He did all of this stuff. He seemed like a really cool guy, but he always seemed to be the guy that lost himself in the relationship. I he was always that. very yeah. much obsessed dedicated beyond the obsessed. hopeless <laughs> beyond obsessed the hopeless romantic like yeah. he just he went all in like 130 percent into so, these relationships yeah while i understand it's young love and it's not that much i'm still a little uncomfortable with the age difference like 16 to 19 is a very significant time in your life so i have my i'm very very interested for part two because i i want to understand things m- more about dennis but those are my those are my thoughts. Um, I did feel bad for Karen uh, when you were describing her childhood. People have shitty childhoods oh. and don't turn into conniving co-conspirator mm. murderers. Um, I feel terrible for Dennis because he has been manipulated mm. so intensely. And there's plenty of scientific studies that show that, especially in men, their brain, they do not develop to have um, the skills that they need to make Mm. good decisions until they're around 24 or 25. Mm, So you have this 19-year-old who, you know, and men are more immature than women. So you have this 19-year-old who is being so manipulated by someone who has to be so skilled in manipulation just knowing the family that she Mm -hmm. grew up in and her mother learned from her family so you just have a chain of manipulation karen karen learned from the best joyce was the master i just have so many feelings about so many people but i'm i'm gonna call bullshit on karen's version of events before we even hear Mm -hmm. dennis's Dennis did not say that to her. No She's way. so no. full of shit. No way. I believe that Karen asked Dennis to kill her mother mm-hmm. um, and manipulated him into that situation. Yep. Dennis did not say Joyce is getting no. between us. Yeah, that's my she's, assessment. She's yep. full of shit. So yep. I'm going to go from my memory because I didn't write this down. But one of the things that I read in the book was that for the first time, so in the summer of 1986, um, when Karen was asking Dennis to kill her mother, Dennis like tried to think of alternate options like you know you're you're 15 like maybe we could work like Mm. my parents could adopt you or or, like we could take you Mm. in um when I'm 18 or like when I'm 19 maybe I can be your legal guardian like he was trying to present Mm. her with alternatives but she was adamant like Joyce would come collect her if she wasn't eight she couldn't make it she was 18 like she would find her no matter what she did like she couldn't escape so I think like and Dennis, Dennis did not want to do this. Like the yeah. ask that was being presented yeah. in front of him, this was always all Karen's idea. Dennis just thought that Joyce didn't seem as bad as Karen was making her sound because mm. Dennis didn't see the side of Joyce that Karen did. I don't doubt that Joyce treated Karen terribly. I'm sure she did from all of the accounts mm-hmm. that I read, all of the different people, family members, like neighbors that had seen how she interacted with Karen. It wasn't pleasant. Like she psychologically abused the shit out of this Definitely. girl. Like, I read that um, she told her that she almost died after giving birth to Karen and because of like the blood loss. And Mm. she spent so much time in the hospital recuperating. But like the way she did it was to like make Karen feel guilty for almost killing her. Yes, exactly. So like it was not a healthy situation that Karen was in. But Karen, she like steered into the skid instead of trying to get out. Yeah. 
man it's just and i'm i'm so sad because it's so easy to screw kids up even when yep. you're trying really hard even when you think you're doing what's best for yeah. them you can still end up psychologically screwing up kids yep. so just this is a bad situation yep. all the way around it's a, it's a flowers and shit situation yeah, really this is, is. Yeah. this is feeling Actually, like flowers and i am i think we're missing the flower side of things. there's this no is flowers just a shit situation shit. Yeah. oh yeah. the flowers are actually in the backseat of the car dennis rented <gasps> right okay. with the gold okay. bracelet yeah. right but it right. wasn't a rolls royce though so, so like that it was shit. garbage that's the shit a side bentley? of it that was yeah. Ugh. Ugh. yeah bentley, bentley. i want an aston martin get the mm-hmm. hell out of here with this mm-hmm. other bullshit so if you guys are loving Grimm, <laughs> please rate and subscribe to our podcast. For those of you who listen on Apple Podcasts, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a written review. Um, we share it with each other every time you guys leave it, and it really, truly makes our day, week, sometimes month. You know, depends on how nice you are in the review. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for case photos and to stay current on all the latest episodes. Want to send us case suggestions or just say hello? Send us an email at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tell Colby how mad it her you are yes, you could do that too. that will happen again i'm sure of it we hope you listen learn and stay alive until next time because the future is grim and you need to hear the conclusion of this episode bye <laughs>